What I'd like to do is, is, is look at this commandment in just a little more detail. You shall not steal. It's actually found, as, as many will know, and as Stevie read for us this evening from Exodus chapter 20. It's verse 15. And incidentally, as many of you will know, the Bible is the world's best-selling book. It continues to be and has been for years. Something like 50 copies. The statistic I found this week. 50 copies are sold every minute around the world. But did you also know that the Bible is the world's most shoplifted book? Which is rather ironic. Uh, And I sort of thought, is it okay to steal a Bible? Is that something you would condone or not? Uh, Two weeks ago, we started with the 10th commandment, don't covet, which actually deals with our thoughts and desires. And then last week, We talked about lying, the ninth commandment that deals with our words, what we say, and how we speak. This week, as we reflect on the eighth commandment, we're forced to consider our actions. Now, when it comes to theft, there are certain types of stealing that are blatant, they're obvious, burglary, shoplifting, joyriding. We tend to see those types of theft in very black and white terms. They're wrong. And anyone caught doing any of this sort of a thing should be held to account. They should be punished. Chances are, but most of us and the vast majority of people will never go there. But the thing with this commandment, as with all the others, is that its application is broader. It's far further reaching, wider reaching than we initially tend to think or maybe even hope. Truth is, lots of theft is what someone has described as quite quiet. It's unspectacular and yet seemingly widespread. I came across this article during the week about theft in the workplace. It seems us workers are a dishonest lot, thieving, lying and making up our expenses. While 43% of UK workers think that expense fraud is dishonest, many workers feel justified in making long-distance telephone calls from work. Some dishonest employees have even sent out their wedding invitations at the expense of the company. According to the survey results, 78% of office workers have taken home stationery over the past year. And 59% have put personal posts through the company mail. One in five have added £10 or more to an expenses claim, while 15% admit to having inflated their travel expenses. More seriously, 2% say they took a friend out for a meal and charged it to their employer. Many office workers feel that they are simply getting back a little of what their employers have taken from them. One in five workers think that expenses fiddling is an acceptable part of company life so long as only small amounts are involved. And based on the survey results, it's estimated that the cost of small-scale expenses fraud to an office of 100 people is around £4,500 per year. It's interesting. But as you scratch a little deeper, let me ask you a few questions, and some of them have come up this evening so far. Have you ever taken a sickie? Have you ever called in sick when actually you were really okay? Have you ever taken a hotel towel or bathrobe? And are shower gels okay if you haven't used them? Ever downloaded a song 
or an album legally? Have you ever copied a friend's CD or someone's Microsoft Word program? Have you ever tweaked info on your tax return or your child tax credit claim? Have you ever stolen time? Have you ever consistently taken extended lunch and coffee breaks? Have you ever kept a library book? Have you ever been given too much change in the shop, realized it, but said nothing? Those are the sort of things that are less black and white. They're more gray. They're less offensive. They're actually more acceptable. They're less serious. They're more low-key. And yet at the end of the day, however you look at it, and whatever spin you put on any of those actions, they're theft. And God says, don't steal. Again, not because God, and this is something we've been saying time and time, not because God is some sort of cosmic killjoy out to spoil your existence and restrict your freedom, but because God knows that stealing actually damages hearts. It damages lives. It damages relationships. It damages communities, commerce, industry, society. It damages the environment. And that's a whole issue in itself. Remember, as Stephen has already said, these are ten laws of love set in stone that have actually been given by a good God who knows what's best for us. And he wants what's best for us. And so this commandment, like all the others, it actually reveals a framework for how you make life work, for how you get the most out of life. But what I want us to do is just take a step back and consider what is it that prompts someone to steal? Why do it? I'm sure we could all come up with a variety of reasons, but one of the things that I find really interesting is how this commandment is connected to some, maybe even all of the others. So for example, the 10th and the 9th commandments are closely linked to this one. People steal something. Why? One of the reasons, because they want what they don't have. They want or they desire what someone else has. And they covet. And they take. And then to cover up the theft, they end up having to lie and be dishonest. So commandments 8, 9, 10, connected and all broken in one foul swoop. But another commandment that comes into play alongside the eighth one of do not steal. And we'll look at this particular commandment in a lot more detail in a few weeks. But it's the second one, the one that prohibits idolatry. It's connected to this commandment. Because idolatry is when things which are often good in themselves, they're worshipped in place of God. That's when something becomes an idol. Takes God's place in your life. And the thing about idolatry is it, dis- it distorts value. And whenever money and possessions become idols, and they are two of the most common idols in our culture, money and possessions. But whenever we elevate those to a much greater place in our lives than they deserve, then what you sometimes find happening is people will go to extreme lengths, strange lengths, certain lengths, to get, to get more in order to have more. And if money and goods become your God, then the tendency to steal, to gain more via dishonest gain, well, that becomes an even greater temptation and likelihood. And as Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. 
You cannot serve both God and money. And if it's the latter, then what you'll find yourself doing is possibly compromising in your pursuit of more. You may be more willing to steal in order to appease what has become a God in your life. So how can we take this commandment seriously? How can we actually allow it, in a sense, to get under our skin to the point where it affects and impacts our lifestyles and our choices and our attitudes towards God and towards what is good? Well, to start with, I think it's really important to consider the issue of ultimate ownership. At the end of the day, whenever we steal, who are we actually stealing from? Well, according to the Bible, everything we have belongs to God. Everything we have and we enjoy belongs to the creator, the creator of this world and the God who gave us these Ten Commandments. And David, that great psalm writer, the noble warrior, the excellent king, he recognized this. And so he expressed it in these words, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. And in a sense, everything that we have is, if you like, and you'll have heard this before, but everything we actually have is on loan. We are stewards of what we own, stewards of what we possess. And so in terms of the specific commandment, the implication here is relatively sobering, I would suggest. That when we steal, we don't just take from a company, we don't just take from an organization, we don't just take from another human being. We are effectively stealing from God. Second suggestion is that we need to get honest about theft, brutally honest. Not to dress it up, not to play it down, but to actually call it for what it is. And it is right to be appalled. It is right, in a sense, to be sick to the stomach whenever an elderly person is robbed in their own home. A type of theft upsets us. But what about when we steal from the taxman, from our local council, or from the artist who's just released their their latest album? Is our behavior, are our actions really, when you strip it all back, are they really any different? Surely theft is theft, or are there different levels of it? Remember the cost. All breaches of God's commandments come with a price tag. And this particular one is no different. Someone, somewhere, has to pick up the financial bill whenever theft occurs. We've already mentioned the cost to employers in the workplace. But generally, whenever or wherever money and or goods are wrongfully taken, either directly or via inflated, exaggerated, dishonest claims, the financial cost on a society is extensive and we all suffer. We all end up paying higher prices for our goods and services. But there is also a cost to victims. And that goes beyond monetary terms. Yes, theft has a financial cost, but it also has a personal cost. I'm not sure if you've ever been on the receiving end of theft. I'm not sure if you've ever had a car nicked or ever had your house broken into. Both have happened to me. And there is a real emotional cost involved and attached to that. 
And for some people, whenever they go through that experience, those scars take an awful long time to heal. And it's important to realize that whenever this commandment is ignored, whenever we steal, that people hurt, that people suffer at so many levels. And therefore, it's really important to recognize there is a cost attached to this. There is a price tag. And when you look closely at this commandment and you start to peel back the layers, you can end up, and I realize this is a danger, you can end up feeling pretty guilty. And you can easily, in a sense, send people on a guilt trip. Because you realize there are so many, many ways to break this one. And so in terms of a very practical response, well, what can we do or what should we do? Well, I think one vital step in the process of living within God's framework for life and in embracing this command is an attempt, and I know that this, it's an attempt to do what you can to make amends. Whenever you reach a place where you accept that you have stolen something, then the challenge is, what will I do, if anything, to make amends? How will I right the wrong? And I fully appreciate that that's not an easy suggestion. And I'm also aware, at least I hope I'm not naive enough not to realize this, that in some circumstances, the implications of putting things right are major. But there's a really interesting story in the New Testament where, where someone realizes that they've done wrong They realize they have stolen. And then they set about making amends. They set about putting it right. And that person is Zacchaeus. And critical to his story and critical to the process that he goes through was an encounter with Jesus. And you can read about it in Luke chapter 19. But Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector for the Roman setup in Jericho. He was small, he was wealthy. Although in terms of theft in the workplace, he knew how to abuse the system. He used his position, he used his influence to take loads of money from people that he had no right to take. Far more than he was meant to collect. In a very real way, bottom line, he was a thief. And one day he meets Jesus, or to be more accurate, one day Jesus met him. And after spending time around a meal at Zacchaeus' house, Zacchaeus experiences what can only be described as a change of heart. Something happens to him at a very, very deep level. He discovers a new outlook in life. And the first thing he does is he decides to make amends. Not only is he going to give half his possessions to the poor, but he goes on to say that if I've cheated anybody out of anything, if I've stolen from them, then I'll pay back four times the amount. And Jesus, in response to this internal transformation that has clearly taken place in this man's life, says, today salvation has come to this house. You see, whenever a person truly meets Jesus and experiences his love, acceptance, his transforming presence. The Bible teaches they become new creations. The old has gone. And part of that reality, part of the outworking of the old going and the new coming will include, I believe, a commitment where possible and where appropriate to make amends for the wrong that they have done to others in the past. Where possible and where appropriate. See, Jesus changes hearts 
But then he sets people on a new path where integrity and godly living become priorities. That's what drives us. We want to be known as people of integrity. People who take God's commandments seriously. Every layer within them. Now, must you be a Christian before you make amends? Must you be a Christian to return what you've stolen, to pay for what you've taken? No, because remember, this is a framework for life, not just a framework for Christian life. But when salvation comes to your house, when someone encounters Jesus, they will want to make amends. They will want to live this way. That doesn't mean a Christian will never steal anything ever again, but it does mean that as the result of the indwelling presence of Jesus by his Holy Spirit in their lives, they should be quick to make amends whenever they recognize and accept, yeah, okay, I have stolen. God says, don't steal. And therefore, where we can, whether Christian or non-Christian alike, we should return things or refund money where that's more relevant and appropriate. Living God's way makes sense, but it's not easy. Living God's way is life-giving, but it isn't always the most popular option. There is a countercultural dimension to embracing this way of life. And living God's way and following Jesus isn't just about avoiding sinful actions like stealing It's not just about saying, well, this is what we shouldn't do and just hammering people with that. It also does involve the pursuit of a better way. It invites us to live as children of light. And so what I want to do just in finishing is I want to look at one verse from Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul describes what living as a child of light looks like. But he talks about it and connects it to this eighth commandment. Here's the verse. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to those in need. Or a different translation, those who have been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. And what Paul does here, he begins by just repeating the eighth commandment. Don't steal. But then he suggests and he recommends a different way. He just doesn't leave it at that. If you're a child of light, it's not just about not stealing. He says, here is a different way to live. Instead, use your hands for good, hard work. You see, God has ordained work, not stealing, as the way of getting what we need. Work, and as we've said this before on so many occasions, work's not a curse. We're actually created to work. It's part of God's intention for us from the very beginning. Work is a gift. What God wanted us to do. It was not the result of the fall. It's not the result of sin. So in turning away from a wrong action, from stealing, what God says is, I want you to, or what Paul writes here is, I want you to embrace the God-given gift of work. Do good with your hands rather than bad. But it doesn't stop there. 
Because Paul goes on to say something about what should be our motive for working or one of our motives for working and earning money. It's so that, and I find this very challenging, it's so that we can then give generously to those who are in need. So in a sense, what Paul's saying is, if you're a child of light, it's not just about quitting stealing. It's not just about working and doing good with your hands. You do it in order to be able to give generously to those in need around you. In other words, live to give. And that, that revolutionary perspective and thinking advice takes your life, including your job, and actually turns it into a work of grace. As a means of displaying grace in other people's lives. And I find that an incredible perspective with regard to what we do. It's a way of displaying grace in other people's lives. Two weeks ago when we looked at the 10th commandment about not coveting, we said that people today live in one of two tents. Content, discontent. And during that service, we suggested that one of the antidotes to coveting was an ability to be content and to be grateful for what you have been given and what you have got. Here, based on this teaching from Paul in the New Testament, we're also talking about being discontent with what others don't have. It's where we reach that place where we care about those in need. And therefore, we begin to give generously in order to alleviate suffering and hardship. And the thing about that way of living is this, that it ensures you don't become selfish. That perspective on life ensures that you keep your attitude to money and possessions in check. And actually, that practice reflects something of the image of God in you. Ephesians 4.25, a few verses earlier, says that those who live as children of light should put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So therefore, whenever we don't steal, whenever we work hard, whenever we give generously to others in need, that image of God in us becomes all the more clearer. And the world in which we live in becomes all the more better. God's way of life does make sense. And theft and the taking of things that don't belong to us, they only wreck, destroy, upset, violate, damage, hurt. And so God again in his wisdom says, listen, this is a law of love I've given you. Don't steal. And so consider ultimate ownership. Be honest and get honest about theft. Remember the cost and make amends. But our primary hope, and as we said this morning, we're quite upfront about this. Our primary hope and prayer for you is that like Zacchaeus, you would encounter Jesus. And as a result of meeting Jesus, salvation would come to your house and transform your life. In John 10.10, it says that Jesus has come to give us life in all its fullness. But the beginning of that verse says, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. And stealing, where we take things that don't belong to us, it's a characteristic of the evil one. And therefore, rather than reflect his darkness, what we're urged to do is walk as people of light, quit stealing, work hard, 
and give generously to those in need. And just in the last few moments, just in quietness again, what we've been doing each week is just given an opportunity for some personal reflection. And just in the silence, three questions. Is there an action I need to address in response to this commandment? How can I make amends for something I've stolen? And is there someone in genuine need I could be generous towards? Just take a moment's quietness, and then we'll sing a final song, and we're done.